Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? I'm doing great because one of my favorite bloggers is on the podcast today. He goes by the name Al, and he has an amazing blog dedicated to grasses and celebrating all of their wonderful biology, ecology, and just ecosystem function to the nth degree. This is an amazing conversation. Al is a great storyteller, and he's, as you're going to hear, extremely passionate about plants, especially grasses, and the role they play in ecosystems around the world. I don't want to take any thunder away from it, so let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Al. I hope you enjoy. All right, Al, it is so great to have you on the podcast. I've been a fan of your writings for a while now, and I'm really excited to pick your brain today. But first, let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. My name is Al, and I am the maintainer of a blog that is dedicated to the Palazier, which is the grass family. Uh, my day job is actually as an IT architect, Uh, specifically a Java programmer. So I spend my days programming, coding, and so on and so forth. But my real job, or at least I kind (laughs) of try to think of it as my real job, is as an amateur biologist. Because I like just doing stuff and learning about, you know, uh, living things and so on and so forth. And in fact, my bachelor's and my master's was actually in biology. So... (laughs) If people say, eh, why the hell are you in biology? Why do you like biology so much? Well, I can tell them it's because I was exposed to it for, damn, maybe 10 years or something like that as I was going through my undergrad and grad school. Nice. So I guess like any, any normal kid, I started out by liking dinosaurs. <laughs> nice. And I know a lot of people <laughs> like dinosaurs. And they started out in the path to biology through dinosaurs. Me too. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) So when I was a kid, I knew about all the dinosaur names, Triceratops, Tyrannosaurus Rex, which was a binomial nomenclature, actually, which I didn't (laughs) know about at that time. And Ankylosaurus, Diplodocus. So I was really into that. And I think I was the only one in my family who was into that, which (laughs) kind of annoyed my parents a lot because I used to talk about it and I, you know, tried to drag them to the museum and all that. Nice. Um, but then, you know, when I was around 15 or so, uh, instead of looking at or instead of being so interested in kind of extinct animals, mm. I started becoming interested in, um, in the living things around me. And the reason for that was I lived in Indonesia at the time over in Surabaya. And I noticed that um, there were these like centimeter long orangey ants that lived in the trees Hmm. and they were very aggressive, very predatory. And they used to make their homes out of leaves that they kind of glued together. Sure. In larval silk. And I found out later the name, I I forgot what I I used to call them, but I used to call them some, some weird red ant name or something like that (laughs) but i found out later that they were actually weaver ants uh, from tropical asia 
Ocophyllus maragdina. Um, and so I used to study these ants like crazy, and I used to try to see how they interacted with all the other insects around them, how they managed to catch prey. And these guys were really good at it because <laughs> they were catching all the way up to lizards and toads, actually. Whoa. Wow. Yes. You can look them up. Weaver ants, okay. actually. Um, and, and so I was really into ants at that time. And to be honest about it, I, it never actually left me because what happens is <laughs> just very recently, I'm still into ants, specifically Phydol megacephala. You probably know about it or maybe not. Uh, it's an invasive ant that is all over here in Florida um, and also in the Caribbean and in any tropical country, basically. Dang. So I was really, really into ants for a while. I'm still into it. Um, but I really didn't get into plants until much later in life, actually. Hmm. So, yeah, so I went into this, um, what is that? Kind of a detour where I like all <laughs> these different kinds of animals. I like ants. I like stomatopodes, which are mantis shrimp. I don't know whether you know about them. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're okay. awesome. <laughs> so, like, I created the first, uh, basically, website dedicated to stomatopods. I love that. The Lurker's Guide to Stomatopods, so you can look that up, and it's like it's still got like the old 1990s website design, <laughs> no awesome. CSS style sheets. <laughs> uh, and I think the last time I updated that was like 19, 1999. Or wow, it's like an antique of a website now. <laughs> I started out. I I started out doing websites when it was like the internet was starting. That's which awesome. Was 1995 or so. Nice. Uh, in fact, that's how I got my first job because I started creating websites. Every time, every time I got into a particular living thing, I usually decide, hell, I like this. I'm going to make a website out of it. <laughs> I love it. You know, yeah, just, just so that I can put all my, um, whatchamacallit, all the ideas I have, all the findings that I have sure. into one place. Because right. I have a very bad memory. And if I don't <laughs> do that, I'm going to completely forget about it. You know, what, whatever it is I found earlier. I love it. So anyway, you can look that up, Lurker's Guide to Smartphones. That's not an ad because I don't get any money out of that thing. <laughs> Fair. None of this is an ad because I don't get anything out of it. You know, this is just for like fun. Exactly. Basically. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, I detoured there for a while. So anyway, I went all the way uh, from animals to plants when I was in undergrad over in USC. So I was at USC, this is University of Southern California over in Los Angeles, middle of the war zone in Los Angeles. And um, uh, the campus there is gorgeous. Uh, but I used to live in this apartment that is nearby that was, it was sh kind of shitty apartment, honestly. <laughs> but I mean, you know how grad school is. Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. I'm the undergrad in grad school, actually, because yeah. I was also a grad. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but whenever I used to walk, and it was like a 20-minute walk, whenever I used to walk from one place to the other, I used to see these really gorgeous-looking trees that had purple flowers, and they smelled really good. Hmm. And I always kind of wondered, you know, what were those trees? And after a while, I actually got off my lazy butt and decided, <laughs> hey, you know what? I'm going to actually try to find out. So I bought this book, which was um, uh, Plants of California, or guide to the trees and plants of California. And I found out it was jacaranda trees. Nice. Right? Which, which was gorgeous trees. 
And so now that I had the book, I figured, hey, I have the book. I might as well do something else with it. <laughs> so I started looking at all the trees and the plants on campus, like trying to identify all of them. And I really liked it. I'm, I'm, I'm really sucky at, at identifying things. Fair. But if there's this huge tree and it's the only thing there and you can see the leaves, hey, easy to identify. <laughs> so even I can do it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and it, so... I started really getting into plants at that time. This was around when I was, I don't know, 18 or something like that, 19. And one time I, I started visiting the arboretums around the area. Because if you're into botany, you're really into arboretums and botanical gardens. Heck yeah. But yeah. So I went into this uh, arboretum. I can't remember the name of it anymore. But I was, I was looking out across a pond and I saw this huge just this huge leaf, entire leaf, as opposed to the divided leaves mm -hmm. of palms or whatever. And it was amazing, amazing <laughs> leaf. And I didn't know what it was, but I said, that's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. So I started looking into uh, aroids because it turns out that was an aroid plant. Nice. And I, it was actually the genus Alocasia. So I've been uh, an aroid fanatic for a long, long time since. 1999 no less than that even um and in fact i have a website for that what i had <laughs> what happened was well like i said yeah. every time i'm focused on something i make a website out of it That's it's awesome. like statues it's like litter that i put in the, in the in, on the web <laughs> that you know that marks my interest i love it so i, I made this uh website that is um uh called the lurker's guide to mechanostigma and the reason it's called mechanostigma is because I tend to specialize in certain plants. I don't actually like, like, I know some people like you, you like all plants, basically. <laughs> but I figure, I figure I'm really bad at identification and I start to get interested in just certain groups of plants. Sure. And so I'm not an expert at all in the entire Arid family, but I, I got pretty good at, at, at a specific subgroup in the arid family called mechanostigma aroids, which are under philodendron before, and now they have their own genus called thomatophyllum, I believe it is. Hmm. So again, uh, I made a website out of it that was there for a while. It's still there. I think I updated it just a few months back. Oh, wow. Because someone, yeah, someone sent me, some people still send me, uh, you know, uh, pictures saying, Oh, I noticed your website doesn't have this particular plant. <laughs> so I got something from Brazil, I believe, uh, saying, oh, I pictured it in his natural habitat. Here it is. So I oh, said, wow. cool. Yeah, but let me try to figure out where that website is and update it. <laughs> so, <laughs> Great. <laughs> uh, so anyway, so I was into Arids for a while. And then around 2010, um, I started really getting into grasses. Hmm. And the reason I got into grasses was because it turns out that my life, in, in my culture, uh, rice is one of the staple foods. It's actually the staple food. Hmm. Um, and so it turns out my life actually has been intertwined <laughs> with a member of the grass family since the moment I was born. And I just didn't realize it. Wow. You know? So... You know, in Asia, it's different. In East Asia, rice is a staple food, but it's more than a food. 
there are actually religions that are, you know, uh, made around it. So I've always been into rice. I started growing rice in New Jersey, believe it or not, <laughs> uh, in around 2010. I grew it in this pot. So what you do is you take, you know, the brown rice that you get from supermarkets, yeah. right? You sterilize them slightly, a hydrogen peroxide solution, and then you just plant them. And huh. I managed to actually grow rice on pots all the way up to harvesting. Wow. Uh, and this is New Jersey. So the growing season is pretty short. Yeah. Um, so I tried to get varieties of rice that were like 90 day, you know, maturation or something like that. Wow. Not the 120 days. <laughs> um, but I didn't know they were grasses, right? I didn't know they were grasses until, and I think this is a common problem with grasses. A lot of people don't actually realize that their lives are intertwined, intertwined with the members of the grass family and the, and the, the, the derived products of the grass family every single day, 24 hours of every day, seven days a week, 365 <laughs> days a year, right? When I wake up, like when I wake up and I eat my oatmeal, I didn't realize that was grass, <laughs> of that genus Avena, okay? Um, I put sugar in my oatmeal, which is kind of weird, my wife says. <laughs> I disagree. Uh, and, I enjoy sugar in my oatmeal. Oh, yeah? Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I like it sweet. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so I put sugar, and sugar obviously is a product derived mostly from um, a, a grass, which is Saccharum officinale, right? I look out my, you know, my window and I see my lawn. And I know some people really don't like lawns, but you know, <laughs> you gotta have a lawn because the HOA says you gotta have a lawn, <laughs> right? Right. So that's obviously turf grass, and that's what most people associate with grass, mm -hmm. right? So when people when people say grass, that's what they think about the turf grass. Um, I drive to work. And when I'm driving to work, uh, the ethanol that is in my fuel <laughs> is probably derived from maize or corn, mm. which again is a grass, right? Um, I eat a burger, you know, when I'm when I'm when I'm at work, when my wife doesn't know about it, um, <laughs> and the the bun of the um, of, of of the burger is of course from you know wheat, right. which is again a grass. Triticum uh, I believe it is. Um, so even though we might not realize it, our lives are tightly integrated with grass, grasses, and the yeah, and the products that are derived from grasses. We can't get away from it, <laughs> even if we tried. Actually, right. So anyway, I got detoured again. No, there. no, quite all right. I love it. <laughs> oh, so. Anyway, uh, then after I started growing rice and started learning about grasses, I said, hey, why don't we have ornamental grasses in our garden? So I started buying all these native ornamental grasses, as well as some invasive ornamental grasses, uh, such as the uh, Japanese bloodgrass, which is still a favorite of mine, actually, even though it's invasive, because it's not really invasive up north. Ah. But, you know, just to be careful, you really shouldn't be planting that anywhere. Nice. So basically nothing happened for all that time. I had other interests. I went into banyan trees. I, I still had the aroids. I, visit, I, you know, I went to the aroid conferences every, almost every year actually. Um, met some great people over there. I, I think you, you did a, a video of aroids one time. Actually. Yeah, yeah, with uh, Tom Crowett of all people. 
Right. So you know how, how great that community is, actually. Of it's a great community. Uh, before this craze about houseplants, um, the Arid community used to be much smaller and people got to know each other very well, so on and so forth. Then around 2018, I believe it is, I started really getting into grasses and I forgot why. <laughs> Such that by 2019, I, I was like, oh, you know what? You know, you have this history of making websites whenever <laughs> you're interested in something. So why are you going to break your record now? So I decided, hey, let's do something, either a website or a blog. And I decided for some reason to create a blog instead of a website because my, if, if you ever look at my older websites, I mean, in terms of design, they suck. <laughs> uh, so I figured let's just do a blog because you can always go to the Google Blogspot or blogger.com, I believe it's called. Mm -hmm. And you have some prearranged uh, designs over there, right? So I, I started the blog, uh, which is called Sajara Pawazie, um in 2019, I believe it was. Uh, and, and it's kind of grown from there. Um, sometimes I kind of wonder to myself, though, why is it I'm so much into grasses? I mean, I know how important it is, but personally, I, like I said, I'm not very good in identifying plants. <laughs> right. I'm, I suck at taxonomy. And I know that I, from firsthand experience, I know that it's very hard to identify the grasses and probably the sedges as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so you, you, it's kind of ironic that maybe I'm a masochist, <laughs> but maybe the, you know, no, but maybe the real reason is that um, I, I kind of decided that don't let this deter you, because if you really like something and are interested in something, not being able to identify each and every, you know, plant that you encounter when you walk outside um, it should not it should not make you afraid of continuing to learn totally okay? and to, to understand that particular living organism and the way i go around the fact that i'm very bad at identification is i tend to focus on just certain grasses mm. right i get to learn how to identify those very very well i get i learn about their ecology their biology uh, how do they interact with all, all, all the other grasses around them, the forbs around them, and the trees around them, and so on and so forth. So I become, I kind of become very good at, 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 at doing that. So that's how I kind of got into the grasses. And uh, what else? Well, actually, I, I just remembered. One thing I realized is that I'm not only interested in being able to uh, identify plants. The other thing I wanted to learn about is the origin of mm, the grasses, yeah. right? So it's not just it, it's not just it's not just how are they right now, but how did they evolve? Where did they come from, right? Like grasses are like these puny little things, right? They're very small, but you you find them in expansive grasslands right now, right? Right, uh, but. We know from the literature, from studies done uh, by researchers, that they didn't start out this way. A long, long time ago, they were just like, you know, minor 
understory components hmm. of the forest. You know, it, the, the, the world looked completely different several million years ago, right? Yeah. I mean, you've got this vast forest. You don't get grasslands. You don't get savannas. Uh, everything was kind of shaded at the ground level, hmm. right? Um, everything, everything, I'll be honest. I get scared when I'm in, in, inside a forest when it's getting dark. <laughs> yeah. I really do get scared. I remember going into, like, I remember hiking one time and I was by myself without my wife. And it was kind of darkish. And I was in a, an open area, but then I started getting into a forested area. And I kept starting to wonder, you know, oh, maybe I should start going home because it's getting really scary in here. <laughs> A little dark, a little dark. Yeah, it's getting dark. It's shady. And I don't know whether there's like a predator like behind the next tree that I'm <laughs> Right, right. So it was a completely different world. So the, the question is, how did it get from that kind of world where it's very shaded, uh, where there is this vast towering trees? How did the grasses manage to, I don't know, push the forest Mm. you know to one side and create this new uh this new ecosystem completely new to the world it's very open or relatively open you can see all the way to the horizon you know yeah. how, how how did that happen so yeah in my opinion that is one of the most important you know botanical or ecological stories in the last few million years because you know without uh, without the grasses moving from underneath the trees to having their own open savannas and open ecosystems, the world today would look completely different. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, we, we wouldn't have, like, a lot of people like the uh, the elephants and the, the this charismatic megafauna in Africa. <laughs> right. And none of those would actually exist without the savannas in Africa, okay? All the antelopes and, and, and the buffaloes and wildebeest and so on and so forth. And there's even some, some researchers who think that we ourselves as intelligent beings might not be here today hmm. without the expansion of the grasslands. So I'm, I'm kind of like interested in that. Yeah. And yeah. So I, I, I wanted to find out all this. So I started reading about it. And, and again, I'm an amateur botanist. There's a lot of amateur biologists out there. Um, don't be afraid of going in and reading scientific papers, going to the originals Agreed. and actually figure out what's, what's, what's going on there. Don't be, don't be deterred by the fact sometimes you can't figure out what they're saying. You just, be, because a lot of those scientific papers are like, treasures yeah okay and, and and if and if you're not comfortable with scientific papers sometimes there are reviews of scientific papers mm -hmm. so in my blog sometimes what i do is i take a scientific paper and i just try to say it in normal words basically or i try to summarize stuff so people don't need to you know try to figure out what's what they're saying even if they're just looking at the abstract right uh, so anyway, we know that grasses came up around, you know, the first, I think the first phytoliths, uh, phytoliths are like grass 
silica bodies, mm. actually, in plants, right? Uh, the first phytoliths were discovered in dino poop hmm. uh, around like 65 million years ago, 70 million years ago. So we know that at least all the way down to where the dinosaurs were still living, there were already grasses, right? Uh, they were minor components of the understory still at that time. So all those pictures that you see of dinosaurs, you know, living in these vast expanses of grasslands and eating grass, those probably that probably didn't happen. But they were there when the dinosaurs were there, right? Um, and I think the first uh, the first pollen, uh, the earliest pollen that was discovered was like 55 million years ago. Oh, wow. It's like 65, 55, so it's easy to remember. Nice, yeah. <laughs> uh, but even 65 million years ago, uh, based on the number of, you know, pollen that's found, uh, they were uh, still minor components. So grasses did not did not really spread out. They did not really push against the forest until around 25 million years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there's this big gap between, you know, when they, were, they first evolved and when they first started really making their big move, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, they went from bit players to like one of the dominant characters in the, <laughs> in the play of life. I guess you could say Seriously. that. I like that. Yeah, yeah I like yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, so it took them 25 million years. And the thing about the expansion of grasses is that it, 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 it didn't occur simultaneously uh, in all the continents. And in fact, I, I believe you had uh, Caroline Stromberg yeah, in one yeah. of your yeah. other podcasts. Yeah. And her paper is actually the one I, I, I read first on this. That's awesome. And yeah, and she basically mentioned that the story of grasses occurred uh, at different times in different continents and even in different regions of the continent. So it was not a simultaneous thing. Wow. So around 25 million years ago, uh, you get the expansion of C3 grasses, where they started pushing back against the forest and replacing forests with open expanses of grasses. And yet that continued all the way down to several million years ago, like 3 million years ago, when the uh, Baltic Sea uh, area suddenly became grassland hmm. or somewhere near there. But then that was the first wave of expansion of grasses. Then around, let me see, around 10 million years ago and going forward, you suddenly see a second expansion of grasses, this time by the C4 grasses, oh. not the C3 grasses. So at first you see the C3 grasses, then you see the C4 grasses. And I'm assuming people know what the difference is between C3 and C4, where, you know, C4 photosynthesis has, has to do with photosynthesis. C4 photosynthesis is basically a more efficient way of doing photosynthesis mm. when it's very hot, when it's very arid, when there is a low CO2 concentration. Right. So that, that's, that's C4, basically. It's a carbon concentrating mechanism. So the C4 grasses started expanding around 25 million years ago. Uh, sorry, 10 million years ago. And again, it occurred at different times in different places. And I, I don't know. I, I, I feel that this expansions are really dramatic okay because we don't know we don't see it now but at that time that ushered in a completely new ecosystem it created a habitat for all these megafauna 
basically that we see today in all the different places right and yeah so that's that's my rambling <laughs> and here oh, we are <laughs> so you know here we are and 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 the question is actually i guess the question is um why did they expand right yeah i mean you gotta wonder you you got this really tiny relatively tiny plants uh and and you get these towering trees so how did the grasses which cannot stand shade, right? They cannot stand shade. You put them in shade, most grasses are just gonna die out. What, what made them expand so dramatically mm. in several different waves in, in evolutionary time, several million years ago? Um, so I was like reading a lot about, about this and it seems that right now there is no definitive answer. Hmm. Uh, but there are several possibilities. So, um, one of the, and, and it goes from global factors to like really regional ones and like the global factors that they point as being very important for the expansion of grasses is decline of CO2. Ah. So, yeah. So around 35 million years ago, something like that. Uh, CO2 started declining. Um, and so that's one possibility because lower CO2 is advantageous. It favors smaller herbaceous plants. Hmm. Um, there's also another factor that they put forward, which uh, supposedly aridity, uh, increased aridity um, in, in several different places, like here in America, in Pakistan, I think, uh, and also in Europe. Uh, supposedly increased aridity was another factor, another global kind of factor that helped in the expansion of grasses. And, and the reason for aridity being a factor is, is, is basically C4 grasses are more, are more efficient in arid conditions compared to trees. So that could be one possibility. Hmm. Uh, another possibility is seasonality of precipitation. So you got this, this, this thing going on where one season you have lots and lots of rain and maybe it's very warm. And then the next season, there's less rain. And it's, you know, and the reason that's very good for grasses is because of another factor that's really, really important, which is fire. So, yeah. So kind of what happens is during the growing season when it's warm and it's lots of rain, the grasses grow like crazy. The fire adapted grasses at least grow like crazy. And then when it becomes dry and not raining at all, then you get the possibility of fires occurring in the grasslands. And which brings us to the next factor that people are talking about, which is fire as being one of the major factors why grasses expanded, especially C4 grasses expanded um around 10 million years ago and going forward and actually it also was a factor in some c3 grasses in europe actually they they determined that fire was a factor in that as well huh. and the the last one was herbivores so you know the megafauna the grazers uh the browsers basically uh what's going on is grasses have their merry stems underneath the ground they're very well protected Whereas trees, you know, have are if you keep 
cutting off their top parts <laughs> and die after a while. Right. Same thing with fire. Uh, really, really tall trees, the fire cannot get to it. But the saplings and the seedlings of trees, fire is going to kill them if they can't grow fast enough. Right. So fire and herbivores are two factors that, you know, that, that researchers say are two of the major factors that are involved in the expansion of grasses. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, the, the researchers used all these this really nice ways of trying to determine what's going on a million years ago. Um, you can, like, for example, how do you know that there are more seafood grasses in the landscape? They can look at the pollen record, right? Or they can look at the phytolites. How, how, how much phytolites are there? If there's a lot of phytolites, you can go all the way to the, to the grass genera. So you can wow. say, oh, yeah, there's a lot more C4 grasses uh, starting with this time period. Um, uh, fire, they, they were using things like charcoal deposits. So <laughs> if you see an increase in charcoal deposits, uh, that means there's more fire happening at that time. Um, I think something interesting that they also used uh, is is uh, leaf wax. I really? believe it. Yeah, they 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 look at the leaf wax, and I think they go. Uh, what what was that? Let me see. Um, some kind of hydrocarbon. I'm trying to look for it right now. It's called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbon. Interesting. So it's a proxy for fire. It basically is is derived from an incomplete burning of organic matter. So that's one thing uh, that they use for fire. And they also actually do phylogenetic studies um, that, uh, that, that you can use to show that there was fire going on at the time. Whoa. Uh, in terms of C3 and C4, it turns out you can, you, can, um, you can determine that using carbon isotope ratios. So I don't know whether we should go into that, but uh, <laughs> from what I read, C4 grasses have more, uh, is a higher ratio of an isotope on carbon called C13 uh, okay. versus the carbon 12. So because of the, the difference in photosynthesis, uh, C4 grasses have a higher ratio of um, carbon 13 than C3 grasses and C3 plants and trees. Hmm. So for example, you can take a look at the uh, carbon isotope ratios in buried sediments, right? The deeper the sediment, the more ancient it is. And they found out that, um, you know, around 10 million years ago, suddenly you get a large uh, amount of change in the carbon isotope ratios. Um, I believe some other researchers have used even the teeth enamel of grazing animals. So they, they look at the carbon isotope ratios in teeth enamel and then they can determine wow. whether the animal was eating more c4 or eating more c3 huh. basically yeah so you know they used all these different things for you know for for trying to figure out stuff and uh like again like i mentioned these things happen in different times in different continents yeah uh, and in the case of um you know africa uh, there was this paper that was really, really good. It's by a guy named um, William Bond. And, and with, 
William Bond AL, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, and what they did was they tried to determine, um, and by the way, William Bond also is a very ardent supporter of savannas and open ecosystems. Good. And he is one of the guys who is basically talking about why is it we're going into this tree planting frenzy. But anyway, I detoured slightly there. <laughs> Quite all right. That way. Yeah, yeah. So what he did is it's really good paper. What he did was he um, he wanted to find out whether in the past South Africa was grassland, and if it was grassland, when did it start to become savanna? Basically, hmm. sorry, when was it uh, savanna? When did it become savanna? So they looked at again the C four C four isotope ratios using teeth enamel, and they found out that C four C4 grasses expanded around seven to eight million years ago, right? Uh, and then what they did was, was, was pretty imaginative because they said, okay, uh, if fire is a factor in the expansion of C4 grasslands, can we use markers or proxies to figure out when those, you know, when that happened? So they looked at charcoal deposits as a proxy for fire, and they found out that uh, you get a, a large increase in charcoal around 7 million years ago. Wow. Which is around the same time as the carbon isotope ratios were saying that C4 grasses started I love expanding. That. That's awesome. Okay. But they went one better. This is actually <laughs> a paper. It's actually a series of papers. It's not just one paper. Uh, what, what they did next was they said, well, do we have anything else to corroborate the fact that uh, C4 grasslands were expanding and fire was one of the reasons for it, or, or at least was correlated to it. Mm. So what they did was they, they, they used another proxy, which is uh, uh, underground trees. Um, so it turns out in South Africa, there is this type of plant that is basically called an underground tree. Hmm. And it has, it's got lignified roots and and stems underneath the ground and the only thing that comes up is like the tips of branches and the leaves cool. okay so it's called an underground underground trees and someone mentioned that uh you know a, a group of underground trees was called an underground forest which was pretty cool actually <laughs> yeah so they found out that these underground trees which are extant today in south africa um, are only found in savanna areas where the C4 grasses are, basically. Uh, they, you cannot find them in um, forested areas. So what they did was they did a phylogenetic analysis of, of these underground trees, and they said, um, are we able to find out when these underground trees diverged from their, from their non-underground ancestors? And when did they start speciating like crazy? So, you know, they did this phylogeny of the underground trees and they found out that it, it started, um, it, they diverged around 10 million years ago to 7 million years ago in Africa, which was fantastic because it yes. kind of matched, right, it matched the charcoal dating and it matched the, um, the, the C4 the C4 carbon isotope ratio test wow. as well. So now you've got two lines of evidence that's basically saying, all right, around 7 million years ago, 
you got the C4 grasslands expanding. And at the same time, you're starting to get large amounts of fire going on. Mm. Okay. So that's one factor, which is fire, which can allow grasses to push back the forest. The other one that they looked at was grazers. So they were, they were saying grazers can do the same thing because in studies nowadays, right? You can do fire exclusion experiments and you can do grazer exclusion exper experiments or browser or herbivore exclusion experiments. And when you do that in a savanna, what's going to happen is that the area that is excluded from fire or from herbivores starts growing lots of shrubs and starts growing trees, actually. And the grasses are kind of pushed out. So uh, they said, well, can we, can we correlate uh, these herbivores with the C4 expansion? And so what they did was they used another proxy, another marker for it, because you can't actually look at it directly. And this time they looked at uh, spiny trees in <laughs> South Africa. Okay. And when I say spiny trees, it's those trees that have spines on their stems, right. as opposed to just their leaves. And they found out that nowadays, spiny trees are pretty much just found in savanna areas. Hmm. They're not really found in shaded areas. Um, and they were thinking that the spiny uh, defense was because of these browsers that came in around the same time. And they were thinking it was the bovins, I think is the term, that were driving the evolution of this spininess in the trees. Huh. So uh, bovids meaning antelopes and their kin. Right, right. right. Uh, so what they did was they did two things. They did two phylogenies. One is uh, the spiny trees. They looked at the spiny trees and say, when, it was it, when did it first diverge from the non-spiny ancestors? And then they looked at the uh, bovids as well. How many lineages were there uh, at certain times in the past? And the amazing thing, actually, was, that, was, was the fact that uh, they dated it down to around 10 million years ago. Dang. Right? So... I, you have all these different things, and it's slightly different than sure. the fire, the, the the fire adapted savannas, right? The grazer adapted savanna seems to be a bit earlier, when it was, um, you know, when it first evolved. Um, but here you get all these different markers basically pointing to the same thing, that the C4 grasslands expanded around, um, you know, around ten seven million years ago. In South Africa, right, and you know nowadays, you know the best grazers ever are basically human beings, <laughs> right? Yeah, because I mean, you know, every time you go mow the lawn or something like that, you're pretty much doing the same thing that grazers are doing, yeah. which is like you know, <laughs> <laughs> maintaining your grassland. <laughs> you're maintaining your grasslands, and you're doing even one better than the grazers because if you're really crazy you're putting all this poisonous stuff and destroying <laughs> all the all the other plants right, that are right. trying to grow so you're maintaining a, a real monoculture yeah. of grasses big time uh and and not only that we, we're like the best 
we're the best thing that ever happened to grasses, actually. <laughs> I mean, that's not even, that's not even, I'm not even joking. Because if you think about it, um, most of our staple foods are grasses. Right. And so we plant just these huge areas of the world in grasses. Um, like, I think more than 200 million hectares of wheat. Yeah. Okay. And probably 200 million of maize or something like that. I'd probably look it up. But it's just this huge amount of areas yeah. that are, 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 are basically, we, we basically converted this land uh, into grasslands, artificial yeah. grasslands. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, we're not only cutting down forest in order to do that, which is really stupid, uh, but we're also destroying pristine grasslands, old growth grasslands, in order to create our monoculture grasslands. Yep. So that's the problem. That's the, that's the problem. And so anyway, that was the past of the grasses. And we know that, you know, the, the story of grasses has not finished yet. I mean, it's still going <laughs> no on right way. now. Right. I mean, we, 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 I go outside, things are unfolding, evolution is happening. So I'm kind of also interested in where do the grasses go from here? Right. What's going to happen to all these grasslands going forward? Right. <laughs> what does the future hold, basically? Yeah. And you know, you know what the what the most uh, pressing environmental disaster that's happening right now is, right? It's you know climate change, right? Basically, right. Okay. And and. Lots of different things are happening because of climate change. Uh, for example, you know, you start getting more CO2, right? You get more CO2. And I already said that one of the factors where grasses became more dominant is declining CO2 levels from around 35 million years ago. So what's going to happen to all the grasses if CO2 keeps increasing? My voice went up there for a while. <laughs> I have no idea. I got excited. It's uh, understandable. <laughs> what, what happens to them? <laughs> well, actually, what's going to happen with the increase in CO2, right, is that uh, the C4 grasses be don't have an advantage anymore right, over right. C4 plants. Okay. Right? They don't have an advantage over the trees, basically. Uh, so there are actually some researchers who say that more than half of all grass species are going to become extinct in the next 50 years. And all these grasses that are going to become extinct are C4 grasses. Dang. Okay. They're saying that obviously, um, just based on, just based on if you decide that CO2 is the main and only factor in, in the expansion of grasses, then you could theoretically simply say that, yeah, okay, if CO2 declines, all the C4 grasses are going to be at a main disadvantage because they're using up more energy to do their photosynthesis without getting much back. Right. Because there's a lot of CO2 anyway. There's no point in using C4 photosynthesis. So that's scary, right? I mean, a maize is a C4 grass. Kogon grass is actually a C4 grass, so I don't know whether that's <laughs> that's a bad thing or a good thing. Mixed blessings. <laughs> yeah, there's says mis mixed blessings, basically. So is that what's going to happen in the next 50 years? And personally, I don't believe that's the case because I think biology, life is complex. Yeah. It's not simple. 
if life was simple, it would be a computer program, right? <laughs> and it's not. Right. It, you, sometimes you can't figure out what's going to happen. You actually have to do it. You yeah. have to live it in order to see what goes on. So what happened was uh, some researchers did a really long-term study, 20-year study, uh, where they took C3 grasses and C4 grasses. Uh, they exposed them to ambient CO2 and then elevated CO2. And they wanted to see what would happen. Uh, under those conditions, and for the first for the first twelve years, everything was a okay in the sense that uh, the projections were correct. Uh, the C three grasses became uh, increased their biomass much more uh, under elevated CO two conditions. Mm. Right, you kind of expect that under right. elevated CO two conditions, C three grasses, which are being hindered by CO two, uh, low CO two will start, you know, churning out the biomass. Uh, whereas the C4 grasses uh, were pretty much the same, whether it's elevated or ambient CO2 conditions. And again, that's kind of kind of makes sense because C4 grasses under low CO2 concentrations are already doing the best they can <laughs> to increase their biomass, right? Um, so everything was as expected for the first 12 years. And then lo, lo and behold, after 12 years, suddenly something surprising happened. Hmm. Uh, suddenly, the C3 grasses were the same in terms of biomass production, whether it's ambient or elevated CO2 conditions. And the C4 grasses, suddenly, um, they became, they, they produce much more biomass under elevated CO2 conditions. So this happened from hmm. um, year 13 to year 20. Wow. I'm assuming they stopped after year 20 or maybe year 20 is, is 2021. <laughs> but, uh, so that was totally surprising. And the story is they really don't know what happened, oh. why that was the case. Uh -oh. Okay. Uh, they, they, they're showing some changes in nitrogen in mm. the soil. So they're thinking maybe it has something to do with the changes in nitrogen in the soil, but they're not really sure. Hmm. So I guess the moral of the story is in life, things are not very simple. <laughs> the simple solutions normally don't get you the right answer. Right. Uh, so anyway, that's the one thing that happens, right? So what else happens uh, under climate change? Um, more fire, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, which we've already been experiencing. Like me and my wife went over to California, um, like when was this? It's September, I think, or something like that. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to visit. Um, we wanted to visit. Uh, what is it, Yosemite or something? Like Sequoia, yeah. Sequoia yeah. National Park. Yeah. Believe it or not, Sequoia National Park. And we wanted to hike because we really like hiking. And we could not go to Sequoia because at that time, I believe it was September. I could be wrong. Um, there were huge wildfires going on. Mm -hmm. It was actually in the news yeah. where, where, where they were wrapping fire retardant uh, around the, uh, the large sequoias. So uh, supposedly, uh, under climate change, we're going to get more frequent fire-prone conditions in larger areas of the world. Uh, in fact, there was a study done that they said, and I think the study was fairly recent, 2021 maybe, that... Uh, there would be an increase of like 30% in global area that is more fire prone. Mm. So what does that mean for grasses? 
it probably means this is a good thing for grasses. <laughs> this fire is usually a friend of grasses. But I got to say something. Yeah. Okay. Uh, don't blame grasses for these huge wildfires that are occurring. Right. Because the, the, the fires that maintain the savannas in Africa are normally very low fires. Mm-hmm. These huge wildfires that you see are usually because of burning trees or like dead trees or dead matter or something like that from trees. So you can't just kind of blame grasses for like, you're going to cause a lot more fire. Yeah, it's just bad usually, ecosystem management. <laughs> <laughs> so usually that would, be, uh, that would be good for grasses, but uh, uh, there was a study done that said that, well, okay, fire is good for grasses, but um, I mean, if you get way too much fire, then you're going to get a, um, uh, what's that called? A response from maybe human beings, you know, that uh, we don't want grasses. Let's destroy all this. Right, right. Which is not good. So what else? Uh, temperature. Obviously, it's global warming, even though we now call it climate change. Uh, so there's going to be a increase in global temperature. And of course, higher temperature favors C4 grasses over C3 trees and plants, right? Um, so, so you would think that higher temperature is great for grasses, but it turns out that some people did a study on this and they said, well, in the next 70 years, uh, the amount of temperature change is like 5,000 times greater than the temperature temperature change that grasses experience during their evolutionary history. Yikes. Okay. Uh, it's that much faster. And so the question is, hey, grasses like, C4 grasses like temperature change, but will they be able to adapt fast enough? Will they change their niche? Will they be following their niche as temperature changes are happening? Or will they simply be able to, you know, kind of adapt the higher temperature without needing to move around. So yeah, who knows? Yeah. Um, so what else happens in climate change? Uh, drought. So um, you're going to get more drought going on. And uh, so this obviously would favor C4 grasses over C3 grasses because C4 grasses have much more efficient photosynthesis other under arid conditions. Uh, so again, I guess it's not a simple simple thing. Just because CO2 is going to be increasing doesn't mean you're going to suddenly see the extinction of all the C4 grasses because climate change is more than large increases in CO2 levels. Yep. Yeah, I, I kind of remember this um, this 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 furor that was going on where there was a paper that I'm trying to remember. There was a paper. That, that mentioned that trees would benefit from climate change in the sense that there'll be more CO2 and higher CO2 concentrations are good for trees. And a lot of the climate change deniers held on to that paper and basically said, well, look at that, yeah, okay? Climate change is actually good for us, you know? <laughs> Because you're going to get more trees. Oh, boy. Uh, and the, right. And of course, they forgot the axiom that things are not simple in the biological world. Yep. Okay. Sure, you're going to get higher CO2 concentrations, but at the same time, you're going to get all these other changes like more frequent fires, drought, 
rising temperatures, and so on and so forth, which are not good for 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 grasses. Right. 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 And then They're you get these sort of these sort of simplistic views of things also breed these situations like you hinted at with this tree planting push. I'm for tree planting if it's native trees in the right place, <laughs> restoring forested ecosystems. But this idea that we can just go out to grasslands because people don't give them the attention they deserve. They don't think of old growth ecosystems as as old growth grasslands. Then you start planting forests, largely just plantations on top of pristine grasslands. Yeah. And it's further yeah. pushing this this vitally important habitat to the brink. You got that right. That's that's one other thing that I know is happening right now. And it's actually, in my opinion, one of the most immediate dangers to old growth grasslands. And um, I mentioned old growth grasslands, and some people might be wondering what are old growth grasslands. Well, old growth grasslands are grasslands that are separate uh, from secondary grasslands that are you know, the, the, that are the products of burning forest or uh, people destroying the environment and then these secondary grasslands come in. Mm -hmm. uh, old growth grasslands are ancient. You know, they have thousands of years. They were there before humans came in uh, or millions of years in the case of the Serrata and all that. So they're ancient. The other thing about old growth grasslands, and, and by the way, this concept, old growth grasslands, is being pushed nowadays by a lot of grassland and savanna researchers yeah and they call themselves open ecosystem researchers because hmm. basically uh savannas are open ecosystems uh grasslands are open ecosystems uh they are highly biodiverse compared to secondary grasslands uh degraded grasslands for example there was a study done that showed that it was up to 30 percent or more 40 percent more biodiverse than secondary grasslands there are more endemics uh, in, mm. in, in ancient old growth grasslands. And uh, an old growth grassland, when it is degraded, it has a very, very slow rate of recovery. So uh, some researchers found out that if you degraded an old growth grassland, it would take more than a millennium to uh, get the same amount of biodiversity as it had in the beginning. I believe it's one one thousand four hundred years. Wow! Um, so those are some of the things that characterize uh, an old growth grassland as opposed to the secondary grasslands that we see today. So uh, back to what you're talking about, the tree frenzy. Um, so tree frenzy is a major problem right now, um, and I call it tree frenzy because a lot of times people just think about planting trees without thinking about the ramifications of the tree planting that they're doing. Where are they planting the trees? Is planting trees in this area a bad idea because the trees are not adapted uh, to that mm -hmm. area? Okay. Uh, and, and, and everyone is into tree planting because of climate change. Basically, they're thinking that tree planting is an easy way out, basically, or an easy thing to do. It's something that's easy to grasp. And I think this all started in 2019 uh, when there was a, a paper in science, and I don't know the name of the paper, but it had something to do with tree restoration potential. Right. So it was published in science. And it basically said that it basically said that the researchers had calculated the area in the world that you could reforest. 
and they calculated it as around 900 million hectares. And 900 million hectares is about the size of the entire United States, including Alaska, I believe. Dang. I could be wrong. I, 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 I didn't grow up in the U.S. That's okay. Um, so according to them, if you forested, or they call it reforest this area, um, you would get like 205 gigatons of carbon storage happening. And this was a big deal because 205 gigatons of carbon is like 20 times the annual fuel emissions that we do worldwide today. Wow. We do like 10 million gigatons of carbon in fuel emissions every day globally. Um, so this was a big deal and like, like almost like hundreds of media picked it up. And um, they picked it up. It went into Facebook, social media, and it inspired a lot of organizations and a lot of governments to suddenly become interested in planting trees. Hmm. So uh, there, uh, in, in this paper was 2019, in around January 2020, right before the pandemic, actually, here in the U.S., uh, the World Economic Forum uh, started its uh, One Trillion Trees Initiative. Okay, where the goal of that is to plant one trillion trees <laughs> <laughs> by 2030. Okay, that's a huge number of trees. Yeah, and 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 not only it not only inspired this new initiative, but it also inspired older initiatives like the Bond Challenge. I don't know whether you've heard about that. No, that started in 2011. They do mass tree plantings, and now they decided. We'll plant 350 million hectares hmm. of tree uh, trees by 2030. Same thing. They're all aiming for 2030, I guess, because uh, it's like 10 years. <laughs> uh, and it also inspired continental organizations. Like in Africa, there's something called uh, AFR 100, which basically uh, is African Forest uh, Restoration Initiative. And the 100 is because they decided they would uh, reforest 100 million hectares wow. of Africa by uh, by 2030. So, uh, you know, and also countries, individual countries started going crazy on this. Like, I don't know whether you've seen this before, but once in a while you see you see this like world tree planting record where where a country announces that um, you know we planted. 100 million trees yeah. in one day yeah uh, so like I, I believe india had something like that where uh they announced that like a million local people planted 200 million trees in one day so that's that you know that's that's amazing numbers of trees basically so like you said I, that's why i call it a tree planting frenzy <laughs> and you know, I, well here's the thing why why is it do we have this frenzy Right? Why? Why is it? I know that trees are iconic, right? I mean, I go into a forest and I hike a lot. I go into a forest and I look up at these trees and I'm just marveling at them. They're iconic. Uh, everyone loves trees. So uh, it, it's tree planting is an easy thing to grasp, right? I, it, it it actually has become a meme in Facebook. Yeah. And it kind of annoys me when I see all these memes like uh, I don't know. Uh, if you're depressed, plant a tree. If you got dumped, plant a tree. <laughs> if you get a, if you get a tire, you know, if, if your house is on fire, plant a tree, whatever, <laughs> right? 
it's it's an easy meme. It's something easy to grasp for people. Right. I think it's also like I don't know. It might even be cheaper for corporations. Oh yeah. And people to do rather than modifying their behavior. Right. 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 So instead of I don't know cutting fuel emissions, changing your behavior, uh, instead of investing in renewable energy, uh, instead of looking at the underlying causes of deforestation why not just plant a tree right okay you right. plant a tree you let it go that's it you did your part for humanity and the world wash your basically. hands go home there, there, there you go yeah. <laughs> and yeah. um i think there's also uh the other problem i think is there's this idea in many people's mind that um natural succession is like this ladder-like process right where you go from small small plants herbaceous plants to bigger trees and shrubs to huge climax trees uh, so whenever someone sees a grassland whether it's old growth or secondary grassland or they see a savanna which i consider a grassland actually because it's um, it's a c4 grassland right uh, whenever they see a, an open ecosystem, they don't think to themselves, what a great stable state that is. <laughs> they think to themselves, well, you know, something is holding it back, whether human beings uh, screwed up this land. And now if you leave it be, then it will become a forest later. Right. Right. So they, they're thinking it's like there's only one direction for, for succession, which is going the way towards large trees. So that kind of that kind of mindset makes them think trees are the ultimate thing. Uh, there's also, and 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 I we know now that again biology is not that simple. Uh, there are actually alternative stable states where you have large trees on one end and you have grasslands in the other right. and savannas. Right. And that this alternative stable states, and they're stable in the sense that they can exist by themselves for millennia without human beings touching them. <laughs> okay. So the reason, well, we know the reason why forests are stable states. They're stable states because they shade out competitors. They shade out the grasses. Uh, not only that, it's humid inside the forest. Yeah. There's no wind inside the forest. Fires cannot actually do very well in humid, uh, um, healthy forest. Okay. So that's what's keeping the forest stable. On the other side, you have the grasslands, the grasslands and savannas. And what's keeping those as a stable state? Well, we already talked about it, right? You got the fire. Okay. Fire is keeping the landscape open. You got the grazers and the browsers, which are again keeping, you know, keeping the the environment open for grasslands. So, anyway, it's I I I I, I detoured again. I love it. I, I was talking. I was talking about uh, yeah, why the frenzy, right? So, um, I think there's also this kind of colonial mindset. I don't know whether it's true or not. I read a long time ago. I read a paper that said that. Uh, when when Europeans came into the tropical areas, um, they came with a mindset where trees are like the ultimate expression of nature. Because in Europe, you get lots of trees. Right. And the only reason you don't have trees is because you cut it down. They were cut down. There's a lot of 
forests that were cut down in Europe. Uh, in, in fact, if you want to look for areas to reforest, Europe should be the first place to do it because there's definitely lots of forests in Europe. Sure. Uh, so anyway, so they came into, into the tropical areas and they said, oh, what are all these grasslands here? There's like no forest. This must have been the fault of the native people, the local people. Right. They must have been doing shifting agriculture or something like that. And that's the reason why you don't get forest. And I think this mindset um, has continued to this day, even in the local people, yeah. where, where they look at grasslands and they say, oh, we must have done something bad to, to make these grasslands happen. We should, it should be a forest instead. Uh, and um, I don't know whether you're keeping up with, with Madagascar, for one thing. Uh, in Madagascar, um, well, like 80% of Madagascar is grassland right now. And children, when they're young, are taught that Madagascar used to be this rainforest paradise in the past, before human beings came. Mm -hmm. And then the ancestors of you guys came, and you burned down all the... Uh, burned down all the trees and created all this grassland. So you're at fault. So it's kind of like making, making it the fault of the local people that right, you, know, you right. get grasslands instead of forest. Uh, and, and there's some research going on right now in Madagascar that it turns out that that's just not the case. Hmm. Um, Madagascar, like Africa, which has a lot of savannas, uh, has savannas actually. Of course, it has secondary grasslands because sure. people do nowadays still burn down forests in order to to cultivate stuff and then you know after a while it becomes secondary grasslands but it turns out that probably a large area of madagascar actually is old growth wow in the sense that um, they look at uh, the number of endemic species in the grasslands and they found out that it was very very high it was like 40 percent huh all right uh, and, and, and not only that, it turns out that the grasses that are in the grasslands are actually can be grouped into two groups. One are the fire adapted grasses, which are adapted to fire going through it once in a while. And it turns out that in Madagascar, there are actually natural fires happening every one to, uh, what is it? Every three years, two to three years. So you, you do get fires going on there without human beings starting it. Um, and also it has uh, grazer adapted grasslands mm. or sorry, grasses or grass species. Sure. So you actually get species that are adapted to either fire or grazing and secondary grasslands usually don't have such uh, co-evolution. I don't know what to really call it. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so, so again, it, it's probably in the mindset of these people yeah. uh, that Grasslands are degraded forests, and they should become forests. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I, I don't know. So what's the problem with, um, you know, planting trees like crazy? Um, if you're doing it for the wrong reasons, it's usually a bad idea. Right. Uh, you know, if you plant trees where they don't belong, that's usually a bad idea. You know. Planting trees on on terrain that like it's snowy or something like that. Uh, people sometimes don't realize that trees actually absorb heat, absorb light because they're darker right. than a lot of landscape. 
you can actually increase heat by planting forest. Uh, uh, another problem with just planting trees without regard for anything else is that you're not looking at the underlying problem. Uh, you, you're, you're making things too simple. So if you're not correcting the underlying problem, you could be planting trees and it'll be deforested at exactly the same rate. <laughs> okay. Uh, and here's the thing. It's also sometimes based on bad data. Uh, and by the way, I have nothing against reforestation. Sure, reforestation, sure. planting trees where they belong, where they were before, agreed, is great. Agreed. Okay. My problem is with afforestation, afforestation, however that's pronounced. Sure. <laughs> Gotta forgive me because I'm, English is not my native language. No worries. Okay. So afforestation is planting trees where trees are not natural, right? So you planted an old growth grasslands. That's afforestation. You plant into where trees were never where that's afforestation. Uh, and the pro and one other problem with afforestation, I just realized, is bad data. Okay. Uh, it turns out that the 2019 paper that started this tree planting frenzy uh, was criticized by other researchers as inflating the amount of carbon storage that would happen by up to five times. Yikes. Okay, that's a huge yeah. overinflation. Uh, oh, um, before I forget, one more problem with um, just planting trees willy-nilly, actually, is it turns out there was, uh, I just read this paper uh, a week ago, where it said that uh, they looked at mass tree planting projects, and they found out that like up to 90% of tree planting projects uh, were not monitored after oh, the trees boy. were planted. Jeez. Of 90%. Okay. So basically, again, it's like the easy way out. Plant a tree, break the record, and get into the Guinness Book of World Record for right. it, I know. Uh, or plant trees because the government is paying you to plant trees. And then forget about it. Uh, and what happens is, obviously, you know, if you're planting trees where they're not supposed to be, they're just going to die. Yeah. And I, I know for a fact that in a lot of countries, this is exactly what, what happened. Like in Turkey... Uh, I, I read about this in the news. Uh, they had a mass tree planting, planted uh, 11 million trees, I believe. And uh, researchers found out that uh, just a few months after the planting, 90-something uh, percent of the trees were already dead. Mm. And it turns out no one was watering them. They basically just planted them and figured out, figured, you know, let Mother Nature take the course. Yeah, of trees course. are going to be okay. So it all died. So yeah. there, I, there I go detouring again because now I forgot what I was talking about. It's cool. Oh, right. the 2019, uh, yeah, paper, right? Yeah. So uh, it turns out they, uh, they, they, they did several things wrong with with their uh, calculations. Uh, again, it was inflated by five times, I believe. Uh, first of all, supposedly they were inflating the gains in soil organic carbon when they did their study. Uh, they, they forgot to take into account the fact that trees have low albedo. Low albedo, I think, means that it doesn't reflect light. Yeah, because the moon has high albedo, and that's why it right, shines at night. Right. <laughs> so, in other words, if you plant trees in certain areas, it's actually going to be a, more of a problem than if there's no trees there at all. Uh, they also, this is a really big thing, which I really don't like, is the fact that in their calculations, they grouped open ecosystems such as savannas and grasslands and shrublands 
as places that can be re, quote unquote reforested. Mm. Okay, so like major portions of the savanna in Africa are are considered part of the places to be reforested. I just gotta wonder: Are you gonna really reforest all these savannas and lose all this? I, I guess you gotta tie in order to make people care about something. You gotta tie it to something that they right. know and about. Because people are not gonna care about just shrubs that are dying off, yeah, or grasses that are dying off, unless the grass is rice or wheat or a bamboo or something like that. Right. You gotta tie it to something that they care about. So. If you de destroy all the savannas, if you start planting trees in the savannas, what's going to happen to all the charismatic megafauna in that area? Yeah. What's going to happen to the antelopes? Okay. Um, the antelopes, the buffaloes, hell, the lions and all the others that are dependent on the, on, on the herbivores, they're going to disappear. This, these things are not inside forests. Yeah. They are in the grasslands. So by destroying this grasslands, you're going to be destroying iconic um, animals totally and of course animals are are you know quote unquote more valuable to some people well that's what people gravitate towards but exactly you know, with this yeah. in mind i mean part of it is just getting to understand and, and appreciate grasses and the ecosystems they comprise so with that in mind you know al this has been fantastic where you know your your website is a perfect place to get that passion stoked in people's bellies to start paying attention. So how do they go and find out more about your, your work and your, your passion for grasses that way? I, mean, I have, obviously I'm the maintainer of the blog Sejara Poisier. Uh, Sejara actually is Indonesian for history or annals. It's actually the annals of grasses or the story of grasses. Nice. Um, so you can head on over there and take a look at what, what is interesting me at that moment in time. <laughs> We think we think a lot alike in that way, <laughs> uh, but but I I would say one thing you should you should do is you should just open your eyes and not just caught, get caught up in fans in memes in <laughs> frenzies that are going on. Yeah. Always think, okay, they're telling me planting trees is great, but it can't be as simple as that, right? right. So what you do is you. You, you look at the literature. I know, I know a lot of people don't want to read scientific literature, but there are reviews of literature out there. Uh, and and it, would, it would make you a better person. And if, if you start like really like reading those as opposed to, I don't know, soap operas or something like that. <laughs> uh, but again, you know, if you want to keep up with what I'm doing, you can go to my blog. Um, I'm going to keep going as long as possible. I hope so. Yeah. Awesome. And uh, I think, yeah, you're right. It's actually eight o'clock already. Um, <laughs> Quite eight o'clock right. over here. Yeah, this I'm, has been yeah. fantastic. But Al, yeah, I, I really appreciate it, man. I mean, I could have listened to you for four more hours. Just go. I, I love your passion. I love the dedication you have to it. And you're a really good storyteller. I really, uh, oh, really? I like that it all comes I told together. You, I told you. I, I used to be a, um, a TA, actually. Yeah, so and I, I used to ramble like crazy, and my students <laughs> actually were like, I, I mean, you know, I rambled the entire one hour or whatever, and they say, shouldn't we be doing lab work now? <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, we'll have to get you back on to talk about specific grasses or anything more. You're welcome back on at any point. No, it was great. Awesome. Actually, I, I. By the way, I love your podcast. Thank actually. you. I told you, I, I, I listen to it every time I'm hiking around 
you know, the lake that's near our home in New Jersey. Well, I appreciate I that. Awesome. Great job. Well, it's been great to connect and talk and uh, yeah, keep it up and we're welcome back. So in the meantime, hang in there, stay healthy and go Grasslands. Grasslands, man. All right. I'll talk che- to you later. Cheers, my friend. All right. How is that for passion? And what a great group of plants to be passionate about. Grasses are so important. As he said, they are so intertwined in our lives, whether we realize it or not. And don't be intimidated by the fact that they can be sometimes very tricky to identify and understand. It's a chance to never be bored again. I thank Al for taking time out of his schedule to talk with us. And of course, you can check out the links to his blog as well as some of the other stuff we talked about in the show notes for this episode over at indefenseplants.com slash podcast. While you're there, consider supporting the show by becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash plants, picking up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch, or some stickers. At the very least, consider hitting that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But that is it for me this week. I thank you all for listening. Hang in there, stay healthy, and be good to each other. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.